In today's episode of Speaking Out of Place, we talk with Professor Adam Aaron, author of the book, The Climate Crisis, Science, Impacts, Policy, Psychology, Justice, Social Movements. As the title of the book indicates, it is a systematic and thorough discussion of not simply the climate crisis, but also, and very importantly, all the key elements we need to know about to do effective activism to save our planet. Adam Aaron is a climate activist and professor of psychology at the University of California, San Diego. His research and teaching focus on the social science of collective action on the climate crisis. I speak with Adam first about the fact that science has shown that we are at a tipping point of no return. After that, we explore the psychological responses to that science, and we talk about how we might work toward changing our individual, collective, national, and international behaviors and actions to address the accelerating climate crisis. Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with the creative process and is made with kind support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for his content. Thank you so much for joining us, Adam. It's a real pleasure and honor to have you on the show. The first thing I'd like to talk to you about is this frightening and very precise notion of a tipping point that you talked about at Stanford. Could you explain what this tipping point is? Yes. So it's important for us to think about this. Right now, humanity and the biosphere is like a little boat going down the river and we could get to the side if we really leave fossil fuels on the ground and cut our emissions. There's probably some amount of heating built in, no matter what we do. Maybe that's 0.3 Celsius, maybe it's 0.5. It's very hard for science to say how much, but it doesn't have to give us hothouse planet. We don't have to have 2.2 or 2.7 or 3.2 Celsius, so we need to get our little boat to the side. The problem is that if we don't, then we'll hit the waterfall, and the little boat goes over the waterfall. It doesn't matter anymore what we do. We can paddle all we like. That's what a tipping point is. The tipping point is like a positive feedback. For example, massive permafrost thaw. So there's enormous amounts of carbon buried in the tundra of Alaska and Siberia. And as global heating occurs and the ice thaws, that carbon is exposed to the atmosphere, the organic matter is exposed to the atmosphere, and it decomposes and releases methane, which is 88 times as potent a greenhouse gas as carbon dioxide. And that will accelerate heating even more, and more heating will give us more permafrost thaw, and that's a positive feedback loop. That's like a little boat going over the waterfall. And there are a number of other tipping points like ocean slowing and so forth. Now, it's very important to recognize that what science tells us, what the IPCC tells us, is the best estimate of when that permafrost thaw accelerates is when we hit about 1.5 Celsius of global heating. Right now, we're at 1.2. So if we carry on burning fossil fuels, we're going to hit 1.5 Celsius about 10 years from now. And that should be headline news every day in the New York Times, LA Times. We should be waking up humanity that we have an incredibly narrow time frame here to really cut emissions. So that's the physical tipping point. You are a trained psychologist. So I have to ask, why are we so resistant to recognizing this tipping point? Why are we so unable to recognize exactly what you've been talking about? And then maybe you could talk about it. How can we get past this resistance to recognizing the tipping point and help others also to get past their resistance? Well, there's not just one tipping point. There's several. And there's obviously uncertainty how fast they unfold. It's not as if we suddenly reach 10 years from now, it's like game over, but it's like that's when the first thaw accelerates. And there's also slowing of ocean currents, this collapse of the Amazon. So the question is, what is it about psychology? So psychology has something to tell us about why so few people 
are really engaged in the climate struggle. And there's different components to this, and I'd say there's three. First of all, there is what I call epistemic skepticism in the book, which is to say skepticism about the facts of climate change. The second thing is that threat perception, that threat levels are not as high as they should be. And the third is that people are skeptical about the response. They don't think that they can do anything or they don't believe that groups or even countries can make a difference. So I'm going to take those three in turn. The first epistemic skepticism, psychologically, this means that Quite a lot of people, for example, in the United States, don't believe in the human cause of heating. And the reason for that is very much to do, in fact, with the systematic campaign of misinformation that's been fostered by the fossil industry back particularly to the 1990s and to today, although it takes on new guys. Systematically set up to confuse people about the scientific consensus. And that's been very successful. So that's some of that skepticism. And then people who do accept the human cause may not recognize that the impacts are bad or that they will be bad. And that is sort of to do with the second issue, which is what I call threat perception, which is a psychological question. We should be very threatened by this. In fact, the youth, generally speaking, are anxious to some extent about it. In effect, Mother Earth is saying, I can't deal with what you're doing to me, people. I'm putting up my temperature. And if you're not feeling anxious, then you're not paying attention. That's the right way to feel on planet Earth. And some people report some level anxiety, but generally speaking, threat levels are not where they should be. For example, as we saw with tipping points, we have about something like a 10-year time frame until science's best estimate when these things accelerate. So we need to find ways to elevate threat perception. And I think that can be done through Hollywood, through script writing, through culture. We need a wider social norm. People need to look around themselves and see that other people care about this. Other people are worried about this. And we don't see that that much. It was partly due to a sort of mm. failure by the news media. The third issue why people are not as engaged as they should be is their skepticism about responding. So a lot of people do know there's human cause to heating. They do know the impacts are here. They do feel worried about it. They have children, for example. And yet, apart from perhaps some changes like buying an EV or putting solar panels on their house, they kind of stop there and feel kind of hopeless and doomist and deadened about it. And I think that is to do with people not having a good understanding of how social changes made throughout history, that the suffragette movement, the civil rights movement, anti-apartheid, the eight-hour workday, the five-day workweek, all of these things are really won by small groups of people getting together and making change. It happened in the Nixon era to get environmental legislation. It happened on the Montreal Protocol around the ozone thinning. It happened on a number of things that local change or national change could become global change. So people need to be reacquainted with a theory of how it is that getting engaged locally in small groups and putting pressure on decision makers can end up scaling to something much bigger. And I just think you know, very few people actually have that model in their minds. You know, scientists themselves, very few of them are speaking, you know, clearly and honestly about the predicament. There's a sort of reticence to, to tell the public the truth. I mean, there are some that do so, like Kevin Anderson and James Dyke and Bob Watson and some of the others. But, you know, there's sort of fantasies that are projected to the wider public. The idea that the 1.5C target is still alive sort of beggars belief when there's about 320 gigatons remaining in the carbon budget to have a 50% chance to keep heating to 1.5, well, we're emitting 40 gigatons a year. So do the math, 320 and 40, it's about eight years from now. We're not going to keep heating to 1.5 Celsius. But that's not widely said to the public. That 1.5 C language still keeps coming up over and over again. I think the third reason is, you know, there's other kinds of fantasies that are perpetrated or perpetuated to keep people asleep. And I see the net zero language as part of that. You know, what net zero was supposed to be was that we would dramatically cut our emissions by about 50% by 2030, and we would explore the possibility of developing technologies that can pull carbon out of the atmosphere. That's what it's supposed to be. Well, what net zero has become now 
is in effect, we keep on extracting and burning. The Biden administration has you know, approved the Willow Project and 73 million acres of gulf to new extraction that the Canadians and the Germans keep extracting. And so what Nazira has become is we keep on burning and we hope, humanity hopes that, you know, decades in the future, five mm. times India will be grown with fast growing crops and those crops will be burned for electricity and the carbon dioxide will be buried underground forever at a cost of 200 trillion. Mm. That is literally yeah. what the plan is. And I think the net zero language confuses people and they think all is well in hand. So those are some of the reasons. Yes. And your last comment leads me to this wonderful passage from your book that I want to quote back to you and ask you to explain more with some examples. And you write, the existential importance of this issue also means we must be both clear-eyed and fair about the solutions we embrace going forward, including rejecting proposed technical and market fixes that threaten to perpetuate the same inequalities, corporate agendas, and extractivist mentality that got us into this climate and ecological crisis in the first place. The only way to prevent more global heating is to leave remaining fossil fuels in the ground and invest in a fast and massive buildup of renewable energy sources. So maybe you could give us a couple of examples of these technical and market fixes that people believe in, like the ones you just mentioned, but maybe a few more, and explain why they cannot work as well as just keeping the oil in the ground. So what we really need to do is to leave fossil fuels on the ground as a matter of urgency. And to do that, we're going to have to run, for example, the United States on a near total reliance of renewable energy, solar and wind with storage. We're going to need to electrify just about everything, including buildings and transit. We need to make changes to agriculture. We need to stop burning methane and extracting it. And I believe all of this is, in fact, technically possible. In fact, it would generate a lot of jobs. It would cost something like seven or eight trillion dollars till 2050 which sounds like a lot, but you consider our defense budgets about $1 trillion per year now anyway. And those are necessary steps. They're not sufficient. We're also going to need to take our foot off the pedal of economic growth. We can't keep growing at 2 or 3% per annum while expecting to make this transition. Some things are going to need to grow less and some things can grow more. We're also going to need to contend with the colossal amounts of new mining for minerals for the renewable energy transition. So we need to keep justice principles in mind. And there will be some amount of damage associated with that, although it'll be orders of magnitude less than the fossil fuel status quo. At the same time, as we do all of this, we recognize this is what we can do and should do. What we realize is that various other technical and market fixes are put in front of us to distract us. And there's a long history of this, going back to the Kyoto Protocol of 1997, when the world tried to arrive at binding emission cuts, instead what was put forward by Al Gore on behalf of the Clinton administration, was carbon trading. So a, a, an absolutely ridiculous and failed regimen of carbon trading, i.e. offsets projects and cap and trade and all these kinds of market stunts that really have not made really the slightest difference in our emissions trajectory. So those are sort of false solutions of market fixes. At the same time, there are false solutions of technical fixes. So the idea that we would, for example, build new nuclear reactors at a cost something like 10 times as much as doing the you know, solar and wind, taking something like 9 to 19 years with a mean of 12 at an enormous cost with all the damage associated is just preposterous. The idea that we would dramatically scale up large hydropower in many ways, which is extremely damaging to hundreds of millions of people and often releases emissions itself. The idea that we'll spray sulfur into the atmosphere or that we'll build devices to pull carbon dioxide out of the air. All of these things are sort of worshipping at the Church of Technology, likewise using methane to generate hydrogen to pretend that we can put hydrogen into gas pipelines ends up just perpetuating the economic might of the fossil gas companies, as does the idea of carbon capture in general, 
that we would build, you know, at great expense machinery over our smokestacks to capture the carbon dioxide and then bury it underground at enormous cost. All of these are sort of technical stunts that take our eye off the ball. And the fact is that last year in 2022, the IPCC produced one of the most hopeful figures that humanity probably would ever see, which is a graph in that report that shows us that we could pretty much cut our 40 gigatons of greenhouse gas emissions per annum by about 9 or 10 gigatons right now, by about 25%, just by shifting more to solar and wind, electrifying and insulating buildings and making shifts to electrification of transit right now at a cost that is actually cheaper than the business as usual. So basically, market and technical fixes often function as ways of just distracting us and prolonging the life of the fossil industry. Having said all of that, we've got to be open-minded. There's not a silver bullet. We can take a basket of policy approaches. And I, for example, think that you know carbon pricing, if done in an equitable fashion, could be part of what we do. For example, if we mm. leverage a high carbon price, one that is high enough to actually make a difference to emissions like $100 a ton or more, and then rebate that to you know low-income households in an equitable way that would be politically palatable, that would definitely be something useful we could do. So it's not as if everything about technical and market fixes is not good. And certainly we need new research and development. Can't ever be against that. We could have better batteries. We could have cheaper batteries. We could have batteries that are made from materials like salt that don't involve you know massive extraction. We don't have to have child labor in the Congo developing cobalt if we can use substitute materials. So certainly we can have research and development. But anything that functions to perpetuate the fossil fuel industry via technical and market stunts is really a false solution. Yes. And when you think of the massive public relations campaigns that they promulgate on the public, which make us think, well, they're taking care of things. You know, we should trust them. They'll get us. They might have gotten us into it, but they will get us out. And there are these beautifully produced images of things just going so well. And so it's a huge disincentive, which is exactly what they want. I'd like to really focus on the 10th chapter of your book, which is on activism, because a lot of our audience is wondering what they can do. And you write, again, the greatest impetus for significant change is likely to be grassroots collective action, which operates relatively free of elite or institutional control and derives its politics from the willingness to disrupt established institutional functions. And you talk about three kinds of organizing. First, community-based second, mass mobilization, and third, momentum-based organizing. Could you talk a little bit more about these three different ways of organizing and how they can help disrupt established institutional functions? Yes. So, you know, I'd start by saying, roughly speaking, there's a distinction between activism and advocacy, Mm -hmm. and we need both, right? And I think we need to recognize that Activists will always be very few. They've always been very few in history on anti-apartheid, civil rights, women's rights. But a small number of activists can make a huge impact. So we need more. We need activism and we need more activists. And that's the disruptors. I'll come back to that in a minute. But nearly everybody else could be an advocate. An advocate is more of an inside voice on your housing association, in your faculty senate, in your student bodies, in your city, in front of your councillors, in front of your elected officials. And we just need a lot more people to be advocates. But going back to activism... The thing that one of the things that makes activism what it is that it is not beholden, as you said, to you know often funders or, or moneyed interests, and so it can be disruptive, and we need that too. And there's different modes of being disruptive and different kinds of social movements. Probably, you know, the best is a hybrid model where you have the sort of slow structure-based organization that exists, that there's staffing, that there's volunteers, that there's an organization that that plans and develops over years and has 
structure in place. And it's combined with a sort of explosive mobilization that will occur periodically. If you think of you know, the George Floyd protests, suddenly, boom, 15 million people came out into the streets in a period of a few days. Well, let's hope we're going to have something like that ultimately on climate. It might be late in the day, but things may happen that we can't predict. So you need to mm -hmm. have something that's ready and available to take advantage of a mass mobilization. Well, should we get that? And that's having some structure in place. So that's sort of hybrid organization. So the three types of organizing are slow, structure-based, mass mobilization, and a hybrid. So a hybrid is probably the way to go. Mm -hmm. And I'm really glad you mentioned advocacy because that's really important. Many people feel, you know, I can't be an activist. I can't devote even part of my day to this. But it's so important to realize that advocacy can be done on many different scales, both in formal and informal ways. How can educators help students be advocates as well as activists? Yes. Well, in my classes right now, whatever I'm teaching, I give students opportunities for extra credit or as part of a class assignment to actually become advocates and give them some instruction and some help in that. And that is just getting up in front of elected officials, for example, right? Which doesn't involve shouting or screaming at anybody. It just involves mm -hmm. using your voice. So I think, you know, part of what we should be doing in our university systems is, you know, helping people do more civic engagement because there's very little of that going on. And telling the story of civic engagement, I think it's Perhaps a little abstract often where students take classes that are about social movement organizing, where they take classes that talk about MLK and the civil rights movement, and it's kind of like a, an assignment for the class and it's over. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a big step between learning about this stuff and actually doing it, and we need people to do it. Mm -hmm. So I think we need a lot more civic engagement, not just on climate crisis, but on many other issues in the United States right now. And yes. Students need to, and everyone needs to be able to find their voice and recognize that when you get engaged, when you turn up, and not everyone wants to speak. Some people are introverted. That's okay. The introverts can do other things that are absolutely critical and often drive the whole thing forward. Research, planning, writing, mm. social media, graphics, video making, contacting elected officials, setting up presentations. But somebody needs to get in front of them. And generally speaking, the more people turn up and get in front of our decision makers, the more likely it is that they will pass the policies we need. Yes. And, you know, I, like you, I'm very hopeful about how movements can grow out of small instances and even as small as, and I'm sure you've experienced this in your classes, when students talk to their parents about this issue, right? And their parents' heads are in different places. But when students talk to their parents and say, you know, you brought me into the world, <laughs> what's your responsibility on this? And parents often sort of come up with the usual kind of almost industry excuses. Well, you know, they're taking care of this. But at some point, parents begin to get it, and then they start going to precisely their lodge meetings or country clubs or whatnot, and they take it with them. So I think that's something really important to stress. And also another thing that you stress, it's important for participants in the climate movement to regard progress in the transformational struggle as partial as it sometimes seems as a win. And I think that's such an important message because, and it gets back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show, we have these tipping points which are set before us. And so often we think if we can't solve each of them almost instantaneously, then we've failed. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about how these partial wins are important for us always to keep our eyes on, and maybe ones that you might have been involved in yourself. Yes, I think there's an important distinction between what's called the transformational struggle and the transactional struggle. And you know, the transformational struggle is really about hearts and minds, and the transactional struggle is actually getting the legislative or policy wins. And people should recognize that, you know, hearts and minds is important too. If we think back to the same-sex marriage example, you get a huge win ultimately in 2015 with the Supreme Court ruling. 
But that's mm-hmm. preceded by decades of teacher by teacher, family by family, a student coming out gay, a parent encouraging it, people having conversations with loved ones and family members bit by bit. Now that's the transformational struggle and that's where we are with climate. The thing is we need that on a much accelerated time frame. We don't have decades, but you know, the shift that needs to take place needs to happen throughout wider society. We need to revoke the social license of the fossil companies to have mm. ads in the New York Times. We yep. need to revoke the social license of fossil fuel companies to promote fossil funding in universities. It should become like tobacco. Mm-hmm. We need a whole mm-hmm. shift in thinking about this. We need just about everybody who, who's worried about it to realize they have front lines where they can make a difference. And a lot of that is about conversations and social norms and showing mm-hmm. others you care. So we cannot underestimate that part of it. That's the transformation struggle that's critical to engage in it. And it undergirds ultimately the transactional wins. So you can't have legislative and policy wins until you have kind of laid the ground. So, you know, people can get involved in laying the ground in myriad ways and recognize that it adds up. And that's what I mean by a partial win. You talk about the idea of framing, which I think is really important. And when you were here, you framed this struggle as a moral one, which I think is so powerful because you can get into the science, which is important. You can get into the legislative issues. But at the end of the day, it's a moral issue, which to my mind, transcend all the particulars. Could you talk a little bit about what you meant by the moral question? Yes. So leaving fossil fuels on the ground, which is what we need to keep organized society functioning just within a matter of decades, right? Really requires policies, right? It's going to require and legal wins. One of these days you're going to wake up and the biggest court case in history will have broken and ExxonMobil and Shell will be on the hook, but that hasn't happened yet. Ultimately, we're going to need very strong policies. We're going to need banning of extraction. We're going to need to crush those fossil interests or take them over and reimburse them. So there's no substitute ultimately for strong policy. And to some extent, the economics will work that way as well. But right now, it's still a moral struggle. If we look, for example, at the University of California, all 10 campuses are burning fossil gas to power themselves. My campus at UCSD is emitting nearly 200,000 tons of carbon dioxide burning frack methane to keep the lights on every day. The chancellor is not compelled to stop doing that in any way, but basically by a grassroots movement and eventually enough strong advocacy and really the moral prerogative. Because it's not economical to stop doing that. It's much cheaper mm-hmm. to burn fossil gas than to get electricity from the grid so far. So the system will generally do what's economically sensible. But in fact, every day the campus is damaging the biosphere, is complicit in perpetuating environmental and climate injustice and damaging the world. So in that sense, it's a moral struggle still. We need major decision makers to make the investment to leave fossil fuels on the ground, which is inconvenient, expensive, and a real pain in the butt for them. Mm -hmm. But we need that done on moral grounds. Now, hopefully in the next few years, that's going to shift to be on legal grounds and on economic grounds. But we're not there yet. Yes, and you've been an activist in a number of different domains and decided to shift and to concentrate your energy into climate change. And I admire you so much for doing this. And when I talk to students about climate change activism, what comes out over and over again is every other kind of activism in one way or another attaches to climate change and to environmental justice. Because, you know, you think about climate apartheid, you think about all these different ways, class issues, race issues, geopolitical issues. Basically, they all are Earth-centered. And if we can't understand that unifying element, then we will be all less effective, I think. If we can't show how these things are connected, they then separate out into their particulars. 
remember when you were here, people were saying, well, what can we students do and what can professors actually do? And you and I, again, both have been active in Palestinian rights. And we both said, well, why not boycott? I mean, withhold labor. Boycotts are essentially a sign that business as usual cannot and should not go on. What other ways can we, and this gets back to your comment about willingness to disrupt, what other ways can we interrupt institutional functions on the climate issue with specifically at universities? So disruption specific universities, well, what should be happening, what would be good to see is they start to look like the Vietnam War, right? If we go back to the 1960s and think about Madison, Wisconsin and Columbia and Berkeley and a number of other places for years on end, students in their thousands came out, occupied administration buildings. And so the anti-Vietnam War effort was enormous and it kind of paralyzed universities and it had a number of different rationales and components, but it was part of getting out of Vietnam and stopping the war. There were other things too, but that was part of it. Well, we really should have that on our campuses now because the global heating that is occurring right now in this sort of narrow sort of 10-year time frame regarding tipping points is threatening organized society within a matter of decades. Already, it starts to manifest very heavily in places like India and Pakistan, where 40% of people work outdoors in agriculture. We're in peril, and it's a peril that really, in objective terms, probably supersedes the kind of peril that you know students faced during the Vietnam War era. I mean, yes, they could get drafted, and there was some probability of being injured and killed, but this is going to disrupt everything about our world. And so there really should be a mass turnout. And of course, if they were, if at the University of California, San Diego, a thousand or 2000 students out of 45,000 came out and shook the building in which the chancellor resides and really showed the administration that this is just unacceptable to keep burning fossil fuels, things would change very quickly. And if that happened everywhere else, it would happen very quickly. Most of the large universities in the United States, Michigan, Harvard, Yale, University of California, are burning fossil fuels. Harvard built a new fossil burning plant in 2021, which pretty much mm. escaped notice. University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill still powers its campus burning coal. This is a completely unacceptable state of affairs. And mass movements of walkout by students, of stopping classes, of effectively boycotting institutional functioning university would help shut that down. And that, that's the kind of thing that could be done. Short of that, there are many other aspects of the way universities are complicit. They are generally using the worst banks. Chase, Citibank, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America are pretty much financing most of the university transactions. And those banks together have financed fossil extraction to the tune of about $2 trillion since the Paris Accords, right? If the banks stopped supporting fossil extraction, it would end pretty quick. And we could make a big impact on our campuses by making a big enough fuss that they would stop with those banks. And finally, there's a lot of faculty and academics and scientists that are complicit in various ways by taking fossil funding. And not all of them, and not all of the time, but in, in many ways, that fossil funding is given for a reason, which is to influence elite opinion. That, that could become shameful. If students and others turned out in enough numbers and made that unacceptable, that would be like revoking the social license. And the fossil fuel industry would have much less purchase in academia to influence elite opinion and keep fostering technical and market fixes that don't work and are not about leaving fossil fuels on the ground. Right. I'm so glad you mentioned that because universities then provide the function of greenwashing. They lend their imprimatur to the continued extraction of fossil fuels and the continued deferment of serious action on the climate. And it's a horrible model to set before students when we talk about morality and democracy and justice and then act in ways contrary. And often enough, it's the students who are the ones that remind us of what the truth and what the true moral good is. What are you working on these days? What kinds of projects are you involved in that you'd like to talk about? 
Well, I'm an activist and organizer of the UC system, and our struggle goes on to get campuses to stop burning fossil gas, and we certainly make headway in that regard. I'm also active in my city of San Diego and increasingly concerned with the sort of energy transition in California for it to be a just transition and for it to be taken out of the control of investor-owned utilities and put more in the control of the people and for that to happen quickly. So I'm involved in those struggles. But as a researcher, I was a neuroscientist and I pretty much quit my neuro... I have quit my neuroscience career. Now I really, I'm in a psychology department, so I'm repurposing myself really as a psychologist who studies collective action. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing some social science research now and trying to better understand how to foster a wider social mobilization. At several different levels, I'm doing that. At one level, it's simply trying to understand what does it take for people to join together and become effective as groups to become advocates or activists, and how can we foster that more widely? Well, your last sentence is so important because, as you know, Speaking Out of Place is now collaborating with The Creative Process, which is a global podcast. And so upping the scale of things from the local to the national to the international, what kinds of international activism do you see that is promising and that you would like to help publicize? I'm not exactly an authority on everything that's happening internationally in the climate space, but there are a few things I pay attention to that are worth pointing to. One is the the struggles of Extinction Rebellion in the UK, how that movement in 2018, 2019 was really successful in achieving its first demand, which is to tell the truth about the climate ecological crisis. I think they did, and I think the wider British society recognized that. They then perhaps were less successful in some of their other aims, and they changed to kind of, you know, forswear for the moment their disruptive tactics, and instead to try and become a much more kind of moderate organization that draws in much larger numbers of the public. And I think that's a very important thing to recognize. We need that in California too. The disruptive, typically left climate groups are very tiny, and they played a very important functional role, even in my city of San Diego, in sort of nipping at and shouting at the system from the outside. But ultimately, we need to connect with the vast body of ratepayers and voters in California, as we do in other countries, who just are not going to be climate activists and advocates, probably anything like the timescale we need. And figuring out how to do that is one of the central mysteries and puzzles we have to solve. I also want to point out that there's all sorts of other groups. There's the Scientist Rebellion, which is scientists, in particularly in Europe, who are very concerned in triggering a shift within academia for people to tell the truth. There's the Indigalanda group in, in Germany trying to stop fossil extraction, the last generation group that is blocking traffic in Berlin right now as we speak to try and get stronger climate policy. So all over the place, we've got lots of groups that are drawing attention. We have the Climate Defiance Group, active just the last few days in D.C. at the Washington Correspondents' Dinner, castigating the media for its failure to cover tipping points and be reporting accurately and truthfully, castigating the Biden administration for expanding fossil extraction. And we have all sorts of groups in the Global South, Friends of the Earth International, particularly important at relentlessly pointing out the absurdity of these technical and market fixes by which corporations of the global north are trying to kind of greenwash the fact that they keep extracting fossil fuels and burning them while pretending they can control other people's forests. And to some extent, I'm in touch with people in South Africa about the incredible struggle there for energy justice and just transition when the government is determined to keep on burning coal and extracting fossil gas, which it is doing so in partnership with Total, French energy company, and also Germans. So, you know, there are many initiatives around the world that are worth paying attention to. Well, it's an incredibly important issue. And a wonderful book, again, it's called Climate Crisis, Science Impacts Policy, Psychology, 
justice, social movements, and as I say on the written introduction, it's a wonderfully systematic book that touches upon all these needed areas to help us finally become better activists and advocates for climate change and social and environmental justice. Adam, so thank you for your work and for your book, and thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, David, and for your great questions. Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's attentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview. 